Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. It is so great to have Rod Cackley as my guest today. He is an award-winning journalist and author, uh, born in Detroit, now residing in Grand Rapids, Michigan. He is a prolific writer with uh, how many true crime books under your belt? I've written more than 15. I haven't counted lately. I should count and see exactly how many, but I know there's more than 15 there. Wow, incredible. And the book that you are here to talk about today is called The Murder of Thora Chamberlain, A Shocking True Crime Story. Thank you for coming on. Well, thanks for asking me. I appreciate it, Eric. Yes. So when did you first hear about this case? This case I got into a couple of years ago, maybe, through a a group called Project Charlie. They're a group that tracks missing people. Uh, They look a lot at teenagers and women. And I noticed the story of Thora Chamberlain and uh, that she'd been missing since 1945. And so it just it was interesting to me. And I just started researching it uh, through old newspapers and, uh, and articles and whatnot. And it, it seemed like a great, it really, I think it's the most exciting true crime story I've ever written to tell you the truth. Wow. Why? Because it's this, it, it's, it's this 14 year old girl who disappears. She gets into a car with a guy and, and there are so many parallels to what's happening today too. A guy pulls up in an old uh, Plymouth sedan. Uh, Thora and her friends are on their way from their high school to a neighbor to a football field for a big football game, big high school football game. And this is November 2nd, 1945. The World War is just over. World War II is over. Their little town of Campbell, California is just packed to the gills with service people returning from the war especially the Pacific Theater. So a guy pulls up looking like a Navy veteran in a a Plymouth sedan, and he offers Thora and her friends $5 if they'll come and babysit, help him babysit his sister's kids. Thora gets into the car, 
and she's never seen again. Well, she's seen one more time. She's seen one more time by a woman going out to the curb to collect her mail. This Plymouth sedan roars past her. She is knocked to the ground. She looks up, and the last thing she sees, or what she sees, is the uh, face of a little girl, a 14-year-old girl with brown curly hair, pressed up against the glass in the car of the passenger side window, just screaming and clawing at the, gra at the glass. And so you've got that. And then you've got this guy, Thomas McMonagall, who women just love. Women fell in love with this guy across the nation. He could have had any woman he wanted. But the deal is with Thomas, he doesn't want women. He wants teenage girls. But these women just fell in love with this guy. So you've got this kind of, you know, Ted Bundy aspect to him. Women actually at one point knocked down the doors, bashed down the doors of a courthouse in their fight to get a front row seat for a trial, for his trial. And then he gets, then he gets convicted. He's convicted and sentenced to death. Well, he leads the cops, the FBI. Now, the, the head of the FBI, the, the head FBI man on this was also a guy who was instrumental in bringing down John Dillinger, uh, E.J. Connolly. And he was, in, he was key in a lot of the old, uh, back in the 30s and 40s, if the gangsters ran out of money, they'd just start kidnapping each other. And he was instrumental, and rich people, you know, beer barons especially. And this guy was instrumental in solving these kidnapping crimes. So J. Edgar Hoover put him on the Thora Chamberlain case immediately. So he's working with the local cops who kind of point him McMonagall's way. But then, so McMonagall acts as his own attorney. He leads the FBI before then on a cross-country chase from California all the way to East Alton, Illinois, which is where his family lives, and then back again. It's an incredible story of how the FBI followed this guy. And while he was hitchhiking, FBI agents, undercover agents, would actually give him rides. They did not want to lose track of this guy because at this point they were convinced that Thora Chamberlain was still alive and they were hoping that he would lead them to her. Yeah, truly a disturbing story with, with a lot of twists and turns. And it takes place in such an interesting time in American history. As you've said, the months immediately following the end of World War II, and there are a lot of uniformed men traveling through California during this time. Yeah, right. And this is where uh, McMonagall uh, seems to have broken into one of the uh, uh, barracks where the, uh, some of the Navy guys were, and he ripped off a four-foot-long footlocker that contained some clothing. And that's clothing he dressed himself in while he was driving around looking for a girl to pick up. Before he picked up Thora, by the way, he approached a couple of elementary school girls and tried to get them to get in the car with him. They ran away. If they had not run away, who knows what would have happened. I'd love it if you could tell us more about Thora Chamberlain. It would be great if, if we could get to know her better. Yeah, she was a very homespun girl. I mean, very, very humble. Her father, a very uh, close-knit family, a father who is a contractor, a well-thought-of businessman, not extremely rich, but they were, I guess you'd almost say well-off. They had a night, they were just a typical California family. She had a couple of sisters, uh, a family you never, who never thought anything like this would happen to them. So again, she was walking to this 
football game. She was approached by this man in a blue sedan. He seemed charming, uh, not out of the ordinary in any way. Right, exactly. You know, that's what I was saying, that there were all these returning service people in Campbell, California, servicemen for the... uh, And so he, he looked, he was dressed like... Uh, a man not in uniform, but still, you know, he had um, a, a T-shirt that a lot of the Navy guys would have, a Navy-style white T-shirt with a purple heart and blue insignia, leading the girls to believe that he was a combat veteran. And pinned on the shirt are several service medals. Of course, McMonagall, this guy in question, with thick, wavy black hair, kind of a quick, easy, goofy smile. I mean, he was also an athletic guy. I mean, when he was a teenager, he was a professional boxer. And so he's, he moves well. He's just a good looking guy. So he's wearing, he's in this old car, but all the cars were old back in those days. Remember, because they shut down the auto plants in the 1940s and turned them over to a wartime manufacturing. Uh, so he's wearing a garrison hat, water, replant, uh, water repellent cover, U.S. Navy style white t-shirt with a purple heart, as I said. He's got some service medals pinned on. So and it's hardly unusual for these girls to see these ex-sailors, soldiers, Marines, and airmen wandering the streets of Campbell. A lot of them, I mean, millions of World War II vets are going to be repatriated through California. Uh, and this includes 800,000 Californians returning home from the war. So it, these guys are wandering the streets waiting for their life, the next chapter in their life, to tell you the truth. So he offers... The yeah, girls. he pulls up alongside the girls, and uh, and they're walking. Now, they're walking from their high school, Campbell Union, to a football field. It's an annual game, a big deal. Uh, they're all ready. They're, they've got a cowbell that they're going to, you know, they're, they're ready, ready to have a good time at this game. And they're each wearing a pair. They're wearing, uh, each are wearing four socks. Um, on each foot, they have a red sock and a blue sock, and those are the school colors, and that's going to be important later in the story, okay? The red sock and a blue sock, two pairs, and they're, they're all wearing those socks. Now, the, he pulls up alongside, and Thora is the only one who has the nerve to go talk to this guy. And he says, I was wondering if you could help me out. I need someone to babysit my sister's kid. He'll probably be asleep for the rest of the afternoon. It's a baby. He won't have any trouble. And he reaches into the front pocket of his slate gray U.S. Navy trousers that came out of that footlocker and pulls out a $5 bill. Now, this is 1945. $5 bill buys a lot of fun in a town like Campbell. And remember, Thora and her friends are on to on their way to a football game with a concession stand, and Thora's figuring that she'll be done babysitting by halftime, and so she'll get to the game and still have plenty of time to have fun. So Thora, he says, I'll only need you for 30 minutes. So Thora's thinking, I'll be back at the game before anybody misses me. Then I'll go home for dinner. It'll be great, and I'll have a $5 bill in my pocket. She's done a lot of babysitting for mothers, so a lot of single women now, because the husbands are overseas. And so she's done babysitting. She knows how to do it. And she'll do it on the spur of the moment because that's just life in Campbell. And people just don't worry back in 1945, I don't think, about children being kidnapped, at least not the way that we worry about it today. Right. He was actually a bus driver in Campbell, California. And uh, so and his route went right by the high school. 
So, you know, I don't think Thora and her friends knew him by sight. He'd got, he got fired as a bus driver because he punched out his boss. Okay, so it was, it was a job that didn't last really long. And as you can tell, McMonagall is kind of a, an emotional guy, kind of a volatile guy, I guess is a better way to describe him. Right, yeah. So how long did it take for her parents to become concerned? About 7 o'clock. Now, this is 3 o'clock when she gets in the car on November 2nd, 1945. Around 7 o'clock, uh, Frank and uh, his wife, they start getting worried. Lois, sorry, Frank and Lois Chamberlain start getting worried around 7, 7.30. Frank's reading his newspaper in the living room. They've had dinner already, but, you know, they have dinner at 5.30. They know that she's at the big football game. So Lois sets some food aside for Thora. Uh, figuring that she'll eat when she gets home. But now it's 7.30. It's two hours past dinner, and they still haven't heard from her. So Mrs. Chamberlain, Lois Chamberlain, starts calling Thora's friends. Uh, again, small town, remember. So uh, she just picks up the, the phone on the kitchen wall and starts dialing. Uh, she talks to Thora's friends, and they start telling her. Eventually, Lois figures out that Thora never went to the football game. And... She went with some guy. She was going to babysit, but they never saw her again after they got in that car. Uh, so now Lois is afraid. She's scared. Uh, all the friends are home. They all got back to their homes around 7 o'clock at 7.30, and Thora's still not there. So Lois calls to her husband, Frank. And now this guy, remember, is a well-respected businessman in Campbell, a small town. Uh, so he picks up the phone and dials direct to the chief of police. Now, now about 8 o'clock at night, less than half an hour later, Frank, Lois, as many cops as they can get and neighbors as they can round up, they're all walking the streets of Campbell now, calling out in vain Thora's name. Yeah. Oh. So Thomas Henry McMonagall walks into his work Right. And his co-workers and boss are more than a little peeved at him. Yeah, right, because he hasn't been at work for several days. Now, this is in Burlingame, 35 miles north of Campbell, the construction yard, Blair's company is. And uh, now he's a good guy. They like him. But it is, as you said, Eric, a little bit chilly now because he hasn't been to work for the past five days. He missed Monday through Friday of last week. Uh, he's still, he's joking around with them, but then he gets up to the time clock to punch in and he finds his time card is missing, which means he's been fired. But now he needs to go to his boss, his foreman, and talk his way back in, which eventually he does because again, this guy, Thomas McMonagall, he is, he's a smooth guy. Okay. Six foot three, packed with more than 200 pounds of muscle. And, you know, this guy, he's a good-looking guy, a big, strong guy, but his boss is just as big and strong. I mean, the way you get to the head of the construction crew back in these days, it seems, is by being able to beat the rest of the guys. So anyway, Thomas talks his way back onto the job. He gets his time card, and he goes to work. 30 minutes or so after punching in, and they're into a back-breaking 10-hour day. It's not easy work at all. One of the guys on the crew yells over to Thomas and he says, so where the hell were you anyway? Thomas leans on his shovel, tips his hat back with his left thumb and smiles. Out with a 15-year-old girl, that's where, Thomas says. And oh yeah, a real cookie she was. 
And, and his coworkers are aware that he's married, right? Right. Yeah, they know he's married and just had a child. He just had a child. He's got a little baby girl at home. So McMonagle decides to make a proposal to his his boss. He has a project that he would like to work on, which surprises his, his boss, to say the least, <laughs> right? Yeah, right. McMonagle is not um, a, a motivated guy, okay? He's not one of these guys who takes the lead and doesn't volunteer for work easily at all. He never volunteers. So Thomas says that he goes up to his boss and he says, what we need to do is build a small ramp or a causeway over this ditch. He's pointing to this ditch. And he says, he said, that way we'll be able to walk over the ditch instead of around it, and we'll save all kinds of time and effort. Well, that's actually a pretty good idea, the boss decides. Uh, but he says, hey, look, if you do your usual half-assed job or decide to take a powder two hours into this, what am I left with now? Thomas promises that he will never ever do that, that he will finish this. He will build a ramp or a causeway over the ditch that you can walk right over the ditch. Uh, you'll never even know it was there. Uh, he's going to fill it in with dirt and concrete blocks and it'll be great. So that's what he does that day. By 5 p.m., uh, he, he gets eight hours to do the job and there by eight, 5 p.m., he's done. The ditch is filled in. There's a causeway over it. So now the guys, instead of walking around the ditch, um, can walk over the ditch and everything's good. The boss is happy, says, good job, see you tomorrow. And that's November 6th. So the FBI, were they invited in to the case? Well, they come in through what is called the Lindbergh Law. You know, the Lindbergh baby was kidnapped. Now, anytime a child is kidnapped back in these days, the FBI gets involved because of what happened to the Lindbergh baby. And so they will come in uh, pretty quick. But now this is the same day that he built that, that causeway over the ditch. Thomas goes home at 625. He goes home in San Mateo, which is where he lives with his wife, Ina, and their baby girl. And uh, he, after having a quick dinner, he informs Ina that he's leaving. He's going to take a walk. He's going to go down to a bus and take a ride. And she says, well, where are you going? Uh, L.A., Los Angeles. That's what, uh, where he's going. He tosses her the keys to that Plymouth, the one that he had Thora in. He tosses her the keys and takes off, and he just walks down to the bus station. And after that, he figures he'll take the bus as far as he goes. The bus will get him to L.A., and there he just sticks out his thumb and starts hitchhiking across the country. So what's his plan? What is he doing? His plan is to go to East Alton, Illinois. He's going to drop in on his family. He really, ha I don't think he has a plan, it, um, but he, he figures he'll head in that direction and see what happens. Did he quit his job? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He just, you know, he, he, I don't think he gave his papers or, you know, gave notice or anything. It's just if you don't, like he did the week he was missing, if you don't show up, you don't get paid. If you show back up again and there's work, they'll give you a job. But so he just takes a hike. He's gone. This is not the, he's got some mental problems. I think you'll be convinced of that by the time you finish this book, that Thomas McMonagall is more than an interesting character. He loves, for instance, to be the center of attention. When he was on trial, he was having the time of his life. He loved being on trial. And he came up with ideal. I think he came up with 
I'd have to get back into the, the book again, but I think he came up with five or six different ways that he says uh, either Thora died or she ran away from him or he's not sure what happened. He had several different places where he says he disposed of the body. Then he can't said, no, I never disposed of the body. She just ran away. I mean, he just loved being on trial when he was when he was at the in the witness stand. He was having the time of his life. He loved it. And he was playing the FBI through all this, too. He really does play the FBI. So is this an important case for J. Edgar Hoover? Yeah, it's a very important case for Hoover because it's a missing child. And uh, he wants this solved. This is the kind, Hoover knows, I mean, he knows the media. And uh, he knows that this is the kind of story the media is going to pick up on. And boy, do they ever. The media jumps all over this story. And uh, so he knows it's a very important case for the FBI to work on. So he assigns Earl Connolly to the case. Yeah. Connolly, among other things, is known for being part of a gun battle with Fred Barker in, in Florida that, that ultimately led to his death and the death of Ma Barker. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah. E.J. Connolly, Earl E.J. Connolly is a very interesting guy, too. This is another reason I just love this story. And I'm not like patting myself on the back here. It's just a, an incredible story. I mean, E.J. Connolly, he he did uh, bust the, the Barker gang, Ma Barker and her boys. Uh, but not only that, he, he's, he's like five foot six, five foot eight. He's lean as a whippet. He like weighed maybe 165 pounds. Uh, served in the Army as a private in 1917, uh, promoted in two years co uh, combat promotion, field promotion to first lieutenant. Then he becomes a lawyer, gets his law, law degree and his accounting degree in New York and joins the FBI as a special agent in 1920. Now, the thing that's unusual about this guy is uh, he had a pencil-thin mustache. Now, remember back in the day, Hoover wanted clean-shaven men. He didn't put up with mustaches and certainly not beards at all. But E.J. was so good that he kept that mustache. I think that's an important part of uh, to show you really what E.J. Connolly was all about. We will be back in a moment. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906 when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. 
Grievous Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And we have returned. How are authorities first alerted to McMonagall? How does he become a suspect? Ah, this is an interesting part of the story too, Eric. Now, Robert Emmett O'Brien is the top cop, the police chief in San Mateo, California. O'Brien, remember I said EJ was built like a whippet, lean, muscular, razor sharp, every hair in place on top of his head, uh, pencil-thin mustache? O'Brien's exactly the opposite. O'Brien's muscular body is well hidden by pounds of fat. He's got wavy black hair that never seems to lay still. It just sticks out everywhere. Even in his photos, the, the formal photos, the police department photos, his hair is just sticking out under his hat. It just never would lay down. It's just an incredible mop of black hair on top of his head. And like I said, he's a big guy. But you would know, you looking at him, you know you hit this guy with a table and you've never heard him. Okay. I mean, he's just a big, tough son of a gun. So these two are sitting across the table from each other and uh, EJ and Robert Emmett O'Brien. Now, EJ is not thrilled to be working with the local cops. Okay. There's that federal local dynamic that, you know, they're polar opposites, but they sit down and talk and it's good politics, EJ figures. So he does it. But O'Brien's got uh, an idea. He's got a suspect already and he pushes uh, a photo at EJ. And it's a photo of our man, Thomas Henry McMonagall, 31 years old, he says, an ex-con from Illinois living with his wife in San Mateo. And O'Brien says, we can't prove it yet, but we think this McMonagall stole a footlocker from a Navy guy. He had clothes in it, just like the clothes that Chamberlain, uh, Thora's friends said the man she drove off with was wearing. So things are pointing to McMonagall. And then O'Brien keeps talking and he says, he is an ex-convict, 6'3", weighs like 183, blue eyes, ruddy complexion, scar on the right side of his forehead above his eye, born on May 28, 1914, in McLean County, Illinois. Uh, no military experience, but he's done plenty of time in a jail cell, uh, O'Brien explains. Vagrancy and assault when he was a kid, relatively minor stuff, but he did eight and a third years for, guess what, attempted rape. So now EJ's radar, is his interest is growing. His radar, that, that hits the, the radar right there. You know, the red flag is waving. And when he gets out, McMonagall gets, you know, I said he drove for the Campbell uh, bus company. He was in San Mateo. He, he was driving a bus in San Mateo. 
of San Mateo Transit Company. So he gets the job there, but he gets into a fight with his boss and punches him out. Uh, but evidently he got booked later in the San Mateo County Jail for alleged assault on a 14-year-old girl. The reason he didn't do, he didn't do time for that though, because the family decided not to prosecute. They didn't want the publicity and they didn't want their daughter to have to testify. Again, if she had, and uh, Thomas McMonagall had been in prison, state prison, San Quentin probably, Thora probably would have gone to that football game and had a great time and been home for dinner. So now that McMonagall is their primary suspect, the next step is to learn everything they can about him. So they go to his work, his home. Yeah, they go to his place of employment, uh, Blair Construction Yard. And uh, a couple of the agents, he sends a couple agents to the construction yard. A couple others will go to talk to his uh, Thomas's wife, Ina. And then EJ is uh, going to go and talk to the girls who were with Thora when she got into that car and drove away. What did his wife think of this visit? And as far as his workplace, did the people there have any light to shed on his behavior? Yeah, everybody told some interesting stories about Thomas. Now, we'll talk about Ina first, I guess. Ina seems to me to be a woman who's had some experience with the law before. So these agents walk into her house, and she this isn't the first time cops have talked to Ina. So uh, she's pretty br- uh, brusque with them, but they convince her that either she cooperates or she's going to be in jail right away. And uh, they take the keys to their Plymouth sedan. That's going to be critical to the investigation. So they get the keys and then O'Brien, our, our local cop, he pulls up with a tow truck and they tow it away. Now, a couple of agents go over to Blair Construction and... Um, they are going to uh, talk to his co-workers and they tell some interesting stories too about Thomas not being at work for those five days, which happened to be five days that, that Thora was missing. You know, so they, and they too don't want to talk either. But once they realize that this is the FBI they're talking to, uh, they tell them, uh, they tell the FBI agents uh, that Thomas was missing for about a week and he was gone uh, on November 2nd. They hadn't seen him then for four days after that. Uh, and they mentioned, too, that he said that he'd been with a 15-year-old girl. Remember he told them that? So they're, you know, now they're really interested in McMonagall. His wife, Ina, has no idea what happened. I mean, to go back to her for a minute, she has no idea what happened. She knows she doesn't want to tell the cops too much, but she also knows she can't keep that to Dan So they they pull off with the sedan, which is going to be very critical to their investigation. EJ goes and talks to the girls that were with Thora uh, when she went missing, when she got into that car. They all tell her pretty much the same story and have uh, similar uh, descriptions of Thomas. Well, then EJ has the picture that O'Brien gave him of Thomas. He takes out seven black and white photos of men with black hair. You know, he's doing a lineup, in essence, uh, you know, a a photo lineup. And each of the girls, one by one, picks out Thomas's photo out of the lineup. Uh, He separates the girls. And and so it's kind of exciting for them, too, to be talking to an actual FBI agent. It's just like being in one of those movies that they watch all the time, they said. So now they're really on, now they're, they're going after McMonagall. They, they're convinced that this is the guy who has Thora. So 
they're building this case against him, but without him. And they need to find him, talk to him. How do they do that? Ah, well, what they do is, can I say one other thing? You know, remember I said the girl who, uh, there, there was a girl who uh, said that McMonagall tried to assault her, but she never testified. Well, now this girl, EJ meets with this girl and her parents, and the girl, Andrea, says that uh, she got into the car, a blue Plymouth, just like the one that Thor's friends say uh, McMonagall was driving. And she says, we started driving, 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 we weren't in San Bruno anymore. She knew they were going across the peninsula toward a place called Devil's Slide. Now, Devil's Slide is like a 300-foot-high cliff over the Pacific Ocean. And they call it Devil's Slide because there are so many huge landslides that go down into this. And the waters in, in the Pacific that are at the foot of Devil's Slide are just incredible. I mean, riptide, waves, it's just a terrible, terrible place. So they call it Devil's Slide. Um, she grabs the door handle of the car that McMonagall is driving and pulls it. She wants to jump out. He grabs for me, he says, she says, gets my arm and pulls me back. Then he drives to the side and hits the skids. He, he stops. I look into his eyes and he's so angry. Nobody's breathing here. Everybody, the FBI agents, EJ, the parents, they just are frozen with her telling this story. Then he lets me go and opens the glove box. But as soon as he lets go, I grab the door handle and the door opens. I jump out and run. She says Thomas came right after her. She didn't get far. He tackles her, jumps on her and puts a gun to her head, and then rapes her. Or as she puts it, does what he did. After a while, we hear a car, and he runs off, and he left her there alive. Now, that's important to think about when we talk about the rest of this story. But yeah, they, what they did was they knew the bus he was on to LA. They go to the bus stop, and they just start tracking this guy. And they figure that he's going to East Alton, Illinois. It's an educated, probably not much more than an educated guess. So they start staking out the way. You know, they've got FBI, they start calling FBI agents along the route. Uh, the only, really only route back in those days to get out to East Alton, Illinois, Route 66. So they're out there and they're stationed out there. And pretty soon they see this guy hitchhiking and they start following him as he gets rides. They would follow him and follow him and follow him. And then they get a tip that he's in Cottage Hills, Illinois, that a civilian spots him. So now they know that's where he is. Now, it's what's going to happen next. Again, they don't want to arrest him. They don't want to spook him because they're thinking that he will lead them to Thora. That's the idea. So for at least part of the way home, McMonagall decides to take a bus. Yeah, right. Huh, this is great. I mean, on the way back, he's hitchhiking, okay? And he's not getting rides very easily for some reason. So the undercover agents start giving him rides. He's in the backseat of their car, and they're driving wherever he wants to go, which is incredibly interesting, I thought. This, this whole network, the way they did this, remember, they didn't have the internet to talk to each other. They couldn't text each other. They really couldn't call each other very well. They had police radios for the first time, but they weren't the kind of radios that you think of in police cars these days. So they, they just had it all together. So they take him to a bus stop, and he's heading back on a bus to L.A. Last thing they want to do is lose this guy. So they put an agent on the bus with him. They're following him, and then they put an agent on the bus with him to L.A. So, so they're just kind of waiting for him with open arms, right? Yeah, except, yeah, they're waiting for it. So they've got, so 
at the bus station, the guys in the car pull up behind. There's an agent with him, remember. Everybody gets off the bus except for the agent and Thomas. And they're thinking, what happened to Thomas? Where's Thomas and where's our man on the bus? Well, finally, the agent, a bus driver, the bus driver, and come out with Thomas and they're carrying him. He's like comatose. He's out of it. He has no idea where he is. He has no idea where he's going. He's practically unconscious. Turns out he took an overdose of pills, of sleeping pills, trying to kill himself. It didn't work. So they take him to a hospital and where they, you know, he gets out of it. And so now, you know, he, he survives the suicide attempt and uh, he's in a hospital and a nurse comes up to EJ and says, you can talk to him now. And December 8th, 1945. Why do you think he comes back? I think he just didn't know what else to do. I think that his, he wasn't, I, I don't think he was welcome at his family's house. Now, he had a kind of a checkered history with his father. They never got along really well. Uh, so I think he just didn't know what else to do. Not the sharpest knife in the drawer, I'll tell you that. Yeah. So there are a lot of reasons to believe that this guy had something to do with her disappearance. It certainly seems as though he was responsible for her murder. But no body, nothing that links him directly to her death. Right. They don't even know that she's dead yet. It, it's after, after he snaps, after the nurses say that, he, that EJ and the team can go and talk to him uh, after they've pumped his stomach and he's survived. It's during that conversation that Thomas says that he killed her. Well, actually, he said, he says, and I quote, if I shot her, that's where it took place, that double slide. Is it Connolly himself who is leading the interrogation? Yes, correct. It's E.J. himself leading the interrogation. Yeah. And um, Thomas says, I didn't want to shoot her. But then he, you know, he, he, he flips around. He says, if I shot her, that's where it took place. That's where it happened, at double slide. Uh, then he says, well, I kept driving with her in the car. I drove north on Highway 1 to Devil Slide. That's where I pulled over. I got her body out of the car and rolled it off a cliff into the water. Wow. As I said, Devil Slide is a rugged ridge of rock, a promontory on the San Mateo coast. Uh, gets its name from these massive landslides. It's like 350 feet in the air. Uh, the undertow, the swell of the water... Uh, Right away, EJ's knowing. Uh, EJ knows, and others who know the area tell him that Thora's body would be ripped to pieces after if after only a few hours if she was actually thrown into that water off the cliff. So, do they think they have a case without a body? Well, they're not sure. See, that's it. Back in these days, it's it's a tough go without a body. They they really need that body. So, uh, if it's true that he threw her off the cliff. They want to find the body. So what they do is they get some Navy frogmen, uh, you know, divers from World, guy, World War II vets to go and jump into the water and see what they can find. And what they find is water unlike anything they have ever been in before. One of the Navy divers gets knocked unconscious by a wave smashing him into a rock and they have to rescue him. And they're in there for a while, and then they come up, and the commander, the leader of the Navy, the Navy team, talks to EJ and says, look, if, if her body's in there, as I said before, it wouldn't last more than a few hours. It would be ripped up, torn to shreds, and out into the Pacific. 
So if that's what happened to her body, they have no hope of getting a body. Now, what they do know is that what they believe is that, well, McMongle told them that he buried some evidence near a tree in his backyard in San Mateo. So they go there and they start digging and looking for evidence. And they do find some stuff. They also find evidence in the car. Uh, in the car, they find a bullet lodged in the wood frame of the car's doorpost. And that would jive with what uh, McMonagle said, where he shot the girl, Thora, and the bullet evidently went through her and lodged in the doorpost. So they're getting all of this evidence. Uh, they actually, and then they go out to um, uh, the uh, Blair construction, and they start digging into that uh, work he did on the ditch, and they find more evidence buried there. So they're getting all kinds of evidence, but they still don't have a body. Oh, and by the way, on the cliff, uh, Devil Slide, they find two pairs of red and blue socks. Oh, boy, yeah. So it would seem, you know, just from the socks, that Thora's body was tossed down there and the socks came off as she was tumbling down. What evidence did they find at the construction site? Oh, they found uh, they found the clothes that he was wearing, the gray slacks, uh, the T-shirt. Uh, they found different clothing. They found her uh, uh, a book that she had had. Uh, a lot of uh, just a lot of uh, a lot of evidence. They they found some bloody upholstery from his car too. Correct. Yeah, that he ripped out. And that's one thing he says uh, in a later interrogation is he had to rip the upholstery out because he, he knew he couldn't get it clean enough. He couldn't get the blood out. So he just ripped it up and decided to bury it. So how do prosecutors approach this case? And does McMonagall have a, a decent attorney to yeah, defend basically him? He gets a public defender. Okay, the, the county prosecutor decides that they'll try the case and go with it because of all the evidence they have and because Thomas confessed. He more or less confessed. Now, remember, we didn't have the Miranda warning back then either. So he confessed and uh, he's arrested. He, he pretty much confessed and they have all the evidence and they believe that they can make their case. He's got a couple of um, uh, attorneys who you know, they're basically public defenders, so they're going to go to court. Where is he being held as he awaits trial? Ah, well, yeah, he could be held in the county jail, but they're not going to do that because, you see, San Mateo and Santa Clara County, uh, they decide that he'll be prosecuted first in Santa Clara County, which means he would go to the Santa Clara County Jail. But Santa Clara County has a history that we could talk about, too. A few years ago, before the, 1933, November 1933, uh, the sheriff in uh, Santa Clara, a guy named Emick, he arrested two guys who were convict, uh, accused of, of kidnapping and killing the son of a very wealthy, popular businessman in Santa Clara County. A San Jose radio station, KQW, actually raised, um, broadcast an announcement of plans for a lynching party. They had an organized community-wide lynching of these guys. People in the town broke into the jail in November 1933 uh, in San Jose. Thousands of people stormed the jail, shoving aside deputies and pulling these two suspects outside. There, as KQW Radio in San Jose broadcast live from a downtown park, 
The two men were stripped naked, beaten, blo beaten bloody, and their arms broken behind their backs when they resisted the mob. A couple of sturdy ropes were tossed over two trees, uh, nooses placed around the necks of these men, and they were lynched. The bodies hung for hours from the trees in the public park before being cut down. So, Sheriff Emick does not want Thomas McMonagall in his jail. He's really not convinced that he'll be able to keep him safe, so Thomas is transferred to San Quentin Prison. I mean, that shows you how different times were back then. I mean, it's just incredible that that would happen, but I, I have it documented. I know, I, I do believe that that is exactly what happened. Goodness. This is all happening fairly rapidly, right? Yeah, right. They didn't wait around to bring people to trial back in those days either. They really didn't. Uh, February 1st, 1946. Remember, Thora went missing on November 2nd, 1945. Now we're less than a year later, just a few months later, February 1, 1946, and we're about ready to seat a jury, six women and five men, to determine whether indeed Thomas kidnapped and killed Thora. And they will also decide whether he lives or dies. So who were some of the more interesting witnesses who took the stand? And was there a, a, a lot of drama in the courtroom? It was filled with drama. I'm telling you, the story, this story never lets you down. You will never be disappointed by this story and the people who got on, on trial. To begin with, now Thomas is starting to lose weight. He needs a haircut. He's not as focused as he was, and he's drumming his fingers on the table. Of course, Frank and Lois uh, Chamberlain, the parents have to testify. And so that's a very emotional scene when they take the stand. Lois tells the jury she was always gracious and loving. My Thora was always a very honest and trustworthy daughter who was always thoughtful of others. Uh, Frank takes his turn on the stand, uh, tells the jury that Thora played bass viola in her Sunday school orchestra and she was learning to play the piano. She had no worries. She had no enemies, says Frank. And I do remember the last day that I saw her alive. She was wearing a new red skirt, a blue sweater, and a white blouse. Those are the school colors, he says to the jury. Thora was carrying her books and a cowbell, too. They had a big football game that afternoon. That's why she had the cowbell. And the books and cowbell, the FBI agents did find, as a matter of fact. That's part of the evidence. Um, so they show these books and cowbell to Frank. He nods and whispers and says, yes, those do seem to be hers. Uh, they show the socks to Lois, and she agrees that those are hers. And Frank says, after he's quickly examined by the defense, the defense never makes much of a case here. But after a quick uh, cross-examination, Frank looks at the jury once again. And before the judge tells him he's excused, he says to the jury, I remember I kissed Thora goodbye at the door that morning. And that was the last time I ever saw my little girl. And now they do bring character. The defense does present something of a case. His lawyer, Bush Finnell, uh, withdrew. So Thomas is now acting as his own attorney. He calls four women to the stand to speak as character witnesses. The first three talk about his what they described as courtesy and service as a bus driver. The fourth wrote a letter to the judge, and she says, as I ride these buses from two to four times daily, I have had many opportunities to observe their operation by Mr. McMonagall. He has always been most courteous and obliging to all passengers. I hope these few remarks will be considered in his favor. Thomas also submits a petition signed by 16 Burlingame teenage girls. 
It says, this is to certify that Mr. McMonagall has been most pleasant in his associations with the undersigned high school students and has gone out of his way to be helpful to us. We would like to express our appreciation of this helpful and fine attitude. How was he even able to find someone willing to sign something like that? Uh, you know, it's like a guy. This is he produced twenty women to speak in his favor. Twenty women, but then O'Brien gets on the stand. Remember, Police Chief O'Brien, and he talks about numerous complaints that he tried to pick up high school girls. Speaking of Thomas, and the whole thing finally got so bad the kids formed what they called the McMonagall Fan Club. And uh, they would make dates with him and uh, wait. he'd wait outside and they'd laugh and giggle at him behind the bushes. And uh, so, you know, he, there, were, there were all kinds of... Uh, then Thora's high school friends do take the stand, too. The girls who were with him, they take the stand. And each one of them, one after another, identifies Thomas McMonagall. We will return momentarily. And we are back again. He, he actually testifies on his own behalf, right? Yeah, he does testify on his own behalf and uh, tells a slightly different story. Oh, by the way, we do have a juror who collapses in the jury box uh, during the trial. So there's that, too. And yeah, he does testify in his own defense. And actually, he says, you know what? It's time to tell the truth. Uh, I will lead you to the body of Thora. And, um, but then... So they all go to lunch after that. And then they come back from lunch and he says, you know what? I changed my mind. I'm not going to, I'm not going to take you there anyway. I'm not going to sign the papers. So again, he refuses. He refuses again to say that Thora is dead. So is he still defending himself at, at this point? Uh, how, how does that work? Well, now he has a different lawyer. Now he has a new lawyer. He has a new lawyer who starts raising questions. Um, you know, they they say, okay, you found her socks. Maybe she ran away barefoot. Maybe she wanted to get away from her family. Maybe she's a runaway. Who knows? And, uh, you know, there were blood on the gray trousers that they found buried at the construction yard in Burlingame. Uh, Thomas's attorney argued that it could be anybody's blood. There's no way to prove that that's actually Thor's blood because, again, they don't have Thor's body. They, they, can't, they can't even, you know, match the type of the blood, the blood type. Um, then Thomas fires these guys again. Uh, well, he doesn't fire them, but he pushes them to the side, okay, and decides that he will take the stand in his own defense. He says, the girl didn't want to go back to school. She wanted to stay with me. He's speaking of Thora now. So we were playing a game, and I was driving quite fast. His attorney, Bert Snyder, says, where were you? On a county road, a country road. I'm not sure where I was, he says, and she jumped out of the car. Thomas is now claiming that Thora jumped out of the car and ran away. But then uh, he finds her and uh, he realizes that she got killed. She died somehow. He puts her in the car and tries to take her to a hospital uh, but he realizes she's dead. So he says he drove down a road and covered the body with leaves, said a prayer, and drove off. What about the murder weapon? Ah, the murder weapon. Yeah, now that is actually they do come up with a witness who actually says he traded the murder weapon uh, to Thomas, the 32 caliber that uh, they believe killed Thora. Again, they don't have the body, but they found a 32 caliber slug, and he was pretty much saying that's how it happened. So they do get a guy to say 
that he did give uh, Thomas the gun. Does it take the jury long to deliberate? No, it doesn't take them long at all. Um, it's, a, it's a quick jury verdict. And, you know, when it's quick, it's usually not very good news for uh, the defendant. And Thomas was convicted. And then the jury did decide to sentence him to death. Do they still try to get him out there to show show them? Yeah, that is. Yep. Even though he's on death row now in San Quentin, they are trying to still find the body of Thora. I mean, it, it, it's beyond evidence now. It's something they want to do for Thora's parents. They want to, to come up with the body. And so he leads them again. It's a great way to get out of jail, right? You lead the cops all over the place. And again, the FBI is not really a part of this now. This is a local investigation now. So they lead them all over the place. But they also are asking other people to look. And a guy by the name of Franklin Hogmeyer, a name I just love, Franklin Hogmeyer, he's a junk dealer in Redwood City uh, with his wife, Lorraine. They live in a small one-bedroom little uh, apartment in Redwood City. Uh, and he decide, he's going out looking for junk uh, that he's going to sell in his little store. And it happens to be on, on some land that's right under Devil's Slide. Uh, and Franklin, believe it or not, he takes Lorene out with him because she wants to get out of the house. And uh, so she stays in the car and he goes and searches below. And guess what he finds? He finds the body of a dead woman. Yikes. Ugh. Is it Thora? We don't know. So we get the cops and, uh, and, and um, Thomas to go out there. And Thomas says, yeah, you know, I do know that is one I killed. I did kill that one. And they go out there, and it's not Thora. It's more or less a skeleton by this time. It's not Thora. It's the body of another woman and um, a, a black woman, a decomposed body of a black woman. And, and Thomas says, yeah, I did kill her. We got into a fight. She had a gun. We wrestled for the gun. And, yes, I did kill her. And so, but then Franklin, guess what happens now? Remember our Franklin, the junk dealer? He goes back up to his car. Before they look at the body again, he goes back up to the car and Lorraine is gone. His wife is missing. So now we got another missing woman in the story. He calls the, he goes home and takes a nap, has <laughs> dinner and takes a nap. And then he calls the police and says, hey, Lorraine's missing. They go back and they figure he must have killed her. So finally they do another search and they find Lorraine and um, he didn't kill her. Lorraine got drunk and fell down a cliff. So you got, you know, nothing but missing women and dead women in this story. It's incredible. And the body of the woman who was found, her name was Dorothy Rose Woods. Right. Yeah, Dorothy Rose Woods, yes. And she was a waitress, and they knew each other. They got into a, they were drinking and got into a, got into a fight. Now, do you want to talk about the scientist now? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, why not? Yeah. Let's talk about a scientist. This scientist comes along, and I don't have his name right in front of me now, maybe, but the scientist comes along and says, you know what? I have brought dead dogs and dead cats back to life. I would like a chance to bring Thomas back to life after you execute him. And Thomas says, yeah, I'll do that. Well, now, wait a minute. This presents a, a legal problem, okay? Thomas was sentenced to death. Now, if you bring him back to life, do you have to kill him again? Or if you bring him back to life, he's already been killed. You've executed him. So now he'll go free. A couple of big legal questions there, right? Well, the warden of San Quentin settles this. He says, no mad scientist is going to set up a laboratory in my place in San Quentin. So 
you know, they're not going to do that. But the scientist sticks around anyway. And so they do execute Thomas, and he's a totally different guy. I mean, walking to the execution chamber, this isn't like a Thomas McMonagall, the jaunty ex-fighter who women love anymore. This is a guy walking to his death, okay? And he slips the warden a note. We'll talk about it in a minute. He slips the warden a note. But the scientist is waiting. He, now, what they're going to do, it's a gas chamber. And, I mean, one thing I learned researching this story is the way the gas chamber worked in 1948, an incredible way to die. Uh, I mean, you would sit in a chair and under you would be a a bucket of water or a a big bath of water. And these cyanide tablets would roll down a chute. You'd hear them coming down and they'd splash into the water below you. And then the fumes would come up and you would, so you would hear them coming down. You would hear them bubbling in the water and the fumes coming up and getting into you and, and you would die that way. My goodness. And because of the fumes, the scientist could not get in there fast enough to get him, to get him out into his little machine, which was a teeter-totter, by the way. It was a teeter-totter. And he would have this special chemical he would inject into your body. And then he'd go teeter-totter back and forth, up and down to make it wash up and down in your body. Oh, my I know. The fun never ends. This was uh, Dr. Robert Cornish. Right, Right. Robert Cornish. Right, exactly. Thanks for filling that in for me. I appreciate that. Absolutely. And he was well known for his resuscitation experiments? Yeah. Yeah, he brought dogs and cats back to life. He'd put them on this teeter-totter and inject them, and they came back to life. I mean, he, you know... You know, another thing that Thomas did was he read uh, while he was on San Quentin's death row, he read about a 15-year-old girl who had gone blind and was looking for an eye transplant. And he offered his eyes to her. And she said, no, I do not want to see life through a dead man's eyes. Oh, my. And so again, Thomas was rejected by a teenage girl. Sorry to dwell on this, but this Dr. Cornish thing sounds so, so outrageous. Did he really believe it was possible to bring people back to life? He said it was. And he now he he said it was that he had brought dogs and cats back to life. And uh, he he said, he said, I will bring the body out of the execution chamber and immediately begin bringing Thomas McMonagall back to life within the walls of the prison. Uh, and the warden Duffy, he doesn't want anything to do with that. Uh, now, he has Cornish did try to do this in other states. He wanted to do it in Nevada. Uh, but uh, couldn't get it done there. There was a, a, in Arizona, they rejected the proposal outright. The warden at Sing Sing in upstate New York didn't mince words. He called the proposal absolutely ridiculous. So he, uh, Cornish had tried to do this in other states and in other, in other prisons. But in Colorado, the governor at the time, Ed C. Johnson, he's the outlier in this debate. He says he'll at least talk to Cornish about the idea. Since Colorado already offered to free two convicts who were willing to undergo TB test experiments. That didn't pan out. That never happened. So really, Cornish is left with Thomas McMonagall and San Quentin at this point. But uh, Duffy, the, the uh, San Quentin uh, warden, says it's as simple as this. Either the next of kin will claim McMonagall's body or he'll be buried in the prison cemetery. <laughs> the ward says, and I'm quoting now, nobody is going to bring this killer back to life. Well, and another thing uh, he said, the, the warden said, I promise you, Thomas Henry McMonagall will not, oh, I'm sorry, uh, Moore, the um, 
the prosecuting attorney, Moore, said, uh, he, he said, uh, McMonagall is not going to cheat death. And he did not. He was executed. He did die. A priest was there, not Ina. Ina did not show up to pick up the body. A priest uh, picked up the body and took it to be buried. So you said that he had changed his story about five times, right? Right. And the prosecution narrowed in on one of these stories as the most logical one, um, the one where he said he had shot her in the car. There was a bullet hole in the car, uh, blood on the upholstery. Mm-hmm. Right. Which one of his confessions, if any, do you believe makes the most sense? I think that's the most logical conclusion is that he shot her and then uh, drove to Devil's Slide and threw the body down. Remember, that's where they found the body of that waitress. And uh, so he's got a history of going there. Uh, the socks that must have come off her feet while she was being thrown. I mean, how else would those socks be out there? Uh, it, it, just, it just seems that that's what happened to me. That, that's my best guess as to what happened. Right. But then again, do you want to, you know, I said that he passed a note to Warden Duffy. The warden read that note. And on that note, it reads, I, Thomas Henry McMonagall, in this last testimony to the people, declare that I did not shoot Thora Chamberlain and I did not throw her body over a cliff. And I never made any confession that I shot Thora in Santa Cruz County. Well, he did, but his idea was, too, that he was so fogged out on those, those pills that he took that he had no idea what he was saying. But he says, I did not shoot Thora, and I did not throw her body over a cliff. There is so much evidence that suggests that he did this. Right, yes. Which, which means it's likely he was a liar to the very end, Yeah, right? exactly. And Warden Duffy, by the way, crumpled that note up and tossed it to an aide for disposal. And he, and he burnt it in an ashtray. Did the family feel any satisfaction over the verdict, his execution? I don't know because they refused to comment. Oh, okay. They just would not comment. Um, and so I really can't say. I, I never found any evidence that they t- were willing to talk to anyone. Right. Ina, though, was willing to talk. Ina uh, says, and one of the journalists, a reporter, asks her. She liked being talked to. She liked being the center of attention too. Uh, she was asked if she believed Thomas killed uh, Thora, and Ina said, "What's the point? He confessed, and there's nothing else to be done." And they they walked. She walked away. Now that little girl, who's a baby, born just a few days before Thora disappeared, she's walking now, and uh, she's Ina's holding her hand, walking away with her daughter. Uh, She looked back over her shoulder at the reporters and says, perhaps it'll all be for the best. So I I read a lot of books for this this podcast, and I'm always interested in writing styles, especially when they're different from the norm, you know, and again, specifically for true crime nonfiction. I haven't read your other books, um, only this one, but you write in the present tense, which I found interesting. And after thinking about it <laughs> on this show, I, I ask a lot of questions in the present tense as well. So I guess I do it sometimes too. But is there a specific reason that you chose to do that? Yeah, for this book, what I was trying to do, and I do with most of my books in the present tense, um, I try to make it a thriller. 
Okay, I want to, I, there's one style of writing that is kind of like, you know, an Encyclopedia Britannica, and I'm not really into that. I want to write a story that is a thriller that people, that's a page turner. And especially this story, I found this one so exciting and interesting that to me, this is a thriller. It's a true crime thriller. And you do also take some uh, artistic license, you know, creating dialogue, etc. Right, exactly. I, I do create some dialogue to move the story along, but most of the dialogue is taken from what they've said in newspaper accounts and magazine accounts. Yeah. So again, I probably don't need to repeat this for my listeners, but here on Most Notorious, we focus on historical true crime. And I have this very arbitrary date of 1979 <laughs> okay, <laughs> um, as my cutoff date. I, I, I try not to cover subjects that happened in 1980 or later. With that being said, are, are there any books that you've written that you might recommend to my listeners that kind of fit that bill? I don't think so, to tell you the truth, although one I'm working on now they might like. Uh, the day that I'm, I'm, my working title is the day that uh, Eva Duggan died. She was uh, the first and last woman executed in the state of Arizona. In 1927, she moved to, to um, a, she was a registered nurse. A lot of these women I find who get in trouble are registered nurses for some reason. But uh, she was a registered nurse and got a job helping an old guy. They actually called him Old Man Matthias an old guy on a ranch, and old man Matthias disappears. And uh, Eva uh, sells off his stuff, and she takes off. Well, they get this guy, this, this cop, uh, a sheriff, who is like the last cowboy sheriff. He rides a horse and everything. I mean, this is why it's so interesting to me. And they find old man Matthias's body when somebody uh, buys the property next door, and he sets up a tent to live in. And he puts the tech stake in, and guess what he found? Old man Matthias buried by the by the uh, by the farm. And the way she died, the reason I my working title is the day Eva Doggett died, is uh, she was the last woman to be executed, the first and last in Arizona. She was also the last uh, convicted killer to be hung, to 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 be sentenced to death by hanging, because of what happened when they hung her. They, you know, they, she put, they put her head in the noose, right? They do the trap door to go down. Her head popped right off. Whoa. The, the rope was so tight, it cut right through her neck and snapped her spine. And the head popped off, and it's like bouncing, boom, 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 on the floor there, while the rest of her body just goes splat on the floor below the gallows. After that, they decided they wouldn't hang anybody anymore. Huh. They, they, they went to a gas chamber after that. So I'm writing that, but it's not only the way she died that's uh, is fascinating. It's just the way they found her, this cowboy sheriff going after her. And uh, the mistake she made was she kept Matthias's car and sold it in the state of New York. And that's how they tracked her down. But her whole thing, she wasn't a really attractive woman. And she said in the trial, after she was convicted and sentenced to die, she said, you know, this never would have happened if I was a flapper. Huh. And they called her on death row, they called her Cheerful Eva because she was such a happy soul. But I am looking more at historical crime, too, to tell you the truth. I find it fascinating. I just I love history, to tell you the truth. And I, so I'm looking a lot more at historical true crime than, uh, 
than, than present day. And I'm kind of looking at 1979 because I grew up in the Detroit area, and that's about the time the Oakland County child killer came out. And that was something that changed life in Metro Detroit forever. I mean, I'm 66 years old, so I lived through this time of children disappearing and then bodies being found, and they never, ever found the killer. They think they know who did it, but by this time he had committed suicide. But it was a time when, back when I grew up, I mean, I would get a, nine years old, I'd pack a lunch and with my buddies, we'd take off on our bicycles at eight in the morning and we wouldn't come home until five in the afternoon for dinner. We would just be out on our own. Well, that changed in the late 70s because of the Oakland County child killers. So, and to my mind, 79, that's a time when life in America changed. When I remember all the child kidnapping stories, uh, you know, they, a lot of them happened then. So I think a lot of life changed in 79. But yeah, historical, true crime, I really, I really enjoy. So I'm working on Eva Duggan right now. Fascinating, yeah. I'll definitely check that out uh, when it's available. So for people who want to know more about you, you've got a website. Yeah, rodcackley.com. Yep, it's a good way to stay in touch. And this book came out last December, so so fairly recently published. Right. Well, awesome. Uh, thanks so much for spending some time with me today. Well, thank you, Eric. I really appreciate the opportunity. I do. Again, I have been speaking to Rod Cackley. He is the author of The Murder of Thora Chamberlain, a shocking true crime story. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.